My name is Naaman Joe Cranston, and I'm joined by my fellow host, Joe McNamara. Hi, everyone. A big thank you to our last guest, Ben Potts, uh, who talks about neurodiversity. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So, uh, we are very pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Dr. Richard Simcock, who will be discussing his role, all the amazing projects he's involved in, and also frailty. Hi, Richard. Hi. Hi, hello. Thanks to be, I'm pleased to be here. Long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> I'm amazed, Richard, the fact that we've worked together and uh, you still agreed to come on the podcast. I think that's... Yeah, well, I, you know, I've, I've been, I've been checking in ever since you first started talking about it and I've, um, it's been an, it's been a fascinating project to evolve and the voices you, I'm just pleased to join the chorus of interesting voices you've had on, on board so far. Oh, thank you. So, do you want to start by telling our audience a little bit about yourself and your your kind of career pathway? Yes, yeah, so thank you. So I'm Richard. I, I'm an oncologist based at University Hospital Sussex down on the south coast in Brighton, where up until COVID I was treating head and neck cancer and breast cancer, but now just focus on breast cancer. And one day a week I work as a consultant medical advisor in the, in what is now called the Centre of Clinical Excellence team at, at Macmillan, which is where I met, met and worked with you, Joe. Um, I came to oncology by a slightly, I, I knew, always knew I wanted to be a physician. You know, you've got to be very suspicious of the first year doctors who don't know if they're a surgeon or a physician. And everyone's worked that out by <laughs> final year of medical school. And I knew I was a physician and I knew I was probably a hospital physician. And actually when I'd done all my medical training and then membership, I thought I wanted to do palliative care and actually started training in palliative care and was working in a hospice in uh, South London called St. Raphael's and actually I did love palliative care, but it wasn't quite floating my boat. And the person who led that hospice was someone who was a somewhat legendary figure in radiation oncology back then, a guy called Joe Ford, who uh, had been a consultant at St. George's um, for many, many years. One of the pioneers of multidisciplinary working in breast cancer, led the first ever MDT in breast cancer, but had retired as a radiation oncologist and then become... Uh, a second career in his 70s as a palliative care physician and I was lucky enough to have him as a mentor and I know a theme in your podcast has been about mentorship and the people who guide and lead you and nudge you towards different places in your career and he he noticed that I perhaps I enjoyed the interactions with cancer patients but I, that, that palliative care wasn't quite for me and he he made a few phone calls and got me into a clinic run at the, running at the Royal Marsden which I did one day a week and, and uh, that was me done. I was, I was, I was sold on radiotherapy. So I then trained in London and the Southeast and did a fellowship in Australia. And I've been in, uh, down in Sussex um, since the, uh, since about 2003, 2004. And then about four, five years ago, took part in a pilot national cancer survivorship project led by Macmillan leading on uh, what, what you can now call patient-initiated follow-up or stratified self-management or remote patient, whatever you want to call it. I, I forget what it's called this week. Terminology change. Um, and um, that that pilot work led me to the, the wonderful organisation that is Macmillan and my involvement with them has grown and grown that I now work for them uh, one day a week as a clinical advisor alongside four days a week as a, a breast cancer clinician. So you do an awful lot, Richard. You're a busy, busy man. How do you manage it all? Because I know how much you do for Macmillan and that's certainly not one day a week. So, you know, what, well, what, what, how do you do it? How do you time manage? Uh, well, the first thing to do is you learn to listen to podcasts at one and a half times speed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of my favourites, I don't know if you've ever listened to Vinay Prasad's uh, amazing podcast on where he dissects oncology data, you know, for any student who wants to understand critical appraisal of of modern cancer uh, literature, I would definitely um, plenary session. It's called Vinay Prasad's, um, and he spends most of the podcast being absolutely outraged at the quality of data that gets published. And if you listen to that at one and a half times speed, it's it doubles the it's at one and a half times speed, but it maximizes the outrage. You get really cross with him. Um, and so I am not a great time manager, I have to say. I, and I, ironically, I you know I'm I, part of the Royal College of Radiologists. I I lecture on there. Um, trainees management course and I usually follow the person who does the time management section and I try to come along after after them to hear what he's got to see if I can learn some and the only self-help books I read are books about time management and 
some of you will know Mark Gay is a paediatric radiation oncologist based in London and he he did the time management course when I was a trainee oncologist and he basically came in um, and just said right I want everyone to say no and everyone went well, I don't know what to do so they started saying no and he said no say no so everyone started saying no and he said no keep saying no and cut to five minutes later, he had everyone in the room on their feet going, no, 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 no. And he said, you've learned the first lesson of time management, <laughs> learning to say no. And I've still not learned that really. I was going to say, you so, not learn from that at all. <laughs> well, you've all of our jobs are hard, right? Everyone is busy. Everyone is frustrated by different aspects of their clinical work. The work is emotionally tough. Uh, it's physically hard at times um, and so you always have to find the joy and uh, the fun and the interest and the reason I say yes to projects is because they keep me interested uh, and if they weren't interesting to me I, I, I would say no to them but if I didn't have those projects I guess I wouldn't um, I wouldn't be enjoying work quite so much so uh, if if the projects seek, cease to become enjoyable I'd stop doing them uh, so I guess I don't really have any great time management tips. It's just make sure that you enjoy it and say no to the stuff you don't enjoy. I think it's interesting you say it's about passion as well, isn't it? There might be something, there might be projects you have to get involved in to help a colleague, but there's other things that you want to do in your own time and you'll dedicate your time to. And you know, those are the things that when you're sat on the toilet, you want to read it, get use that time management skills in that kind of respect as well and there's also about the respect being about... you when you talk about colleagues it's being respectful of them too i've certainly been guilty in the past of saying yes to a, a, a project which i thought i'd be able to do and inter and then it became too big or too long and actually i didn't deliver and you start to let other people down and that you've got to try to be careful to not do that so sometimes saying no at the outset um, is actually a more honest and sincere way of helping other people than saying yes reluctantly or thinking that you'll have the time and actually letting them down later on. Um, so I will say no to some things, but I'll be honest about it at the beginning. Say, look, I'm, if I say yes to this, I don't think I will deliver in the way that you need to do. And I think uh, you need to be honest about that because otherwise you will let colleagues down. Yeah, exactly. Um, as an oncologist, Richard, um, I know you're quite active on Twitter. Um, you have yeah you have a very active research profile as well. What sort of research are you involved um, in at the moment? So my research has been again. The, the, I'd love to say that I'd planned it, and I really haven't. It's been about things that have interested me along the way. So, the first big research project I became involved in was actually looking at acupuncture in radiation-induced serostomia. Um, we I, we were interest. I was interested in. The, the use of complementary therapy by patients is something I remain interested in. We've got a project at the moment with our ethicists about why patients might choose complementary and alternative strategies. But we we chose a group of patients who don't traditionally seek complementary and alternative medicine, so uh, head and neck cancer patients. Uh, and they were they were very limited, based on the literature, very limited users of complementary alternative medicine. And there was some limited data suggesting acupuncture might be helpful for radiation-induced serostomia. And so we sat down with the Sussex Health Outcomes and Research Evaluation Unit at the University of Sussex, led by Professor Dame Leslie Fallowfield, and said, if acupuncture was a new drug, how would we test that properly? And try to set it because the problem with complementary alternative medicine is some of the literature out there is of very poor quality. So we set out to design a trial that would stand up. And we did what remains to this day one of the biggest trials ever done in that area. Um, we did show a benefit of group acupuncture for people with them, um, but it taught us a lot of lessons. Uh, Jean Tremler, the, the uh, our research radiographer who was extraordinary, um, hated me because one of her jobs was to learn how to put some, uh, uh, put a little uh, cannulate the parotid duct and collect people's spit in the study. Uh, <laughs> she's never quite forgiven me, quite never quite forgiven me for that. Uh, the only saving grace is that most of these patients didn't produce a lot of spit, so she did, it wasn't quite <laughs> as gross a, a role as she thought. Um, so that led me into quite a lot of quality of life research with, with Professor Dame Leslie Fallowfield's team. I've been very pleased and proud to work with her team on a lot of communications work. So she's led a lot of work on videoing consultations and analyzing those. And uh, currently interested in the, the prehab space. And one of my 
main considerations always is how we best communicate with patients and currently some so we've done quite a lot of work on taping and audio this shows how old i am taping audio consultations with patients uh, the, the two of you probably don't know what a tape is but it was a machine that we used to have in the 80s oh i do richard um, and then we moved on to cd recording uh cd recording consultations then there was a moment a few years ago where i realized if, if i had a bad news consultation the only place i could and someone was kind enough to record it on a cd the only place I could listen to it was in my car. So I thought that wasn't great. And my new car doesn't have a CD player either. So now we're recording on iPhones for people. But actually the, the thing I'm involved in at the moment, which is so, I, I'm embarrassed that this research even needs to be done because it seems so obvious, is research on writing directly to patients rather than copying letters to patients. Um, to me, you'll hear a lot of research, which is VMAT, VMAT surface guided radiotherapy massively resource intensive the research to show its worth is expensive and difficult you can do every patient should be allowed to have a copy of their letter written about them but if instead if you flip that and instead of writing to their gp and copying to the patient and instead write to the patient and copy to the gp you've done something which fundamentally changes the nature of the conversation you absolutely make the patient the center of what you're talking about and as an innovation, it costs absolutely nothing. It's the same amount of typing. It's the same amount of dictating. It's the same amount of envelopes getting stuffed and emails being sent. But you have fundamentally changed the conversation about that person's care. So the research is not about um, why that's valuable. The research is why the heck are we not just doing it? What What is stopping healthcare professionals from making this jump? to actually writing to patients instead of writing to other healthcare professionals and trying to understand what the barriers to that are. That's really interesting. Uh, that, I find it. Because yeah. uh, my oncologist actually wrote to me and included all of my test results and um, stage and grade and everything. And I was like, oh, is that because he knows that I'm in oncology and I'm just one of those anomalies? Um, but it really did change the conversation because they were so open about everything that would usually go to the GP. And obviously the first thing I'm going to do is wait for that letter to hit the GP. And then I'd go, can I please see my medical records? So even the administration must go down hugely from GP surgeries. Yeah. Makes a huge difference. And you know, the GPs like it too. I, you know, GPs are enormously overworked. Um, I, I love GPs a lot i i love them so much that i go to bed with one every night and <laughs> so 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 i understand the issues the same one i should i should I, I hasten to add but um so i understand the issues from second hand very well and gp you know the gp does not need to know nor does the gp nor does the gp able to know that this patient had 40 gray and 15 of intensity modulated radiotherapy with deep inspiratory breath hold why do we write letters like that we write letters like that because they're actually we're when we write letters we're actually uh, fibbing we say we're writing to the gp we're saying we're writing to the patient what we're actually doing is writing a note for ourselves so these letters have a, a duality of purpose and when we've piloted writing letters to the patient and copying to the gp rather than vice versa the reaction we've had from gps is this is great we now understand the letter <laughs> so <laughs> we, so the format is we write a letter with the jargon at the top this patient had a locally advanced Gleason 8 prostate cancer treater with, you know, VMAP, whatever. And then we say, dear Mr. Smith, thank you for coming to clinic today. We talked about your prostate cancer. Uh, the research evidence would suggest that uh, what's really fascinating about it is that when you do that, uh, the great the great advocate of writing to patients and communication with patients, this guy called Martin Tassel, is a giant of, um, of oncology in Australia, sadly died a few years ago but did loads of literature in this space and showed that if you write to patients, not only were they, they likely to be more compliant with care, they're more likely to agree with the treatment strategy. But what's really fascinating is they're more likely to be satisfied with their care. Now, their letter isn't the care. The letter is a record of the care. But if you engage them and make them this, this is about you. Um, you know, the, the, there's not I'm not very fond of um, our Tory health ministers, but one of the, one of them I don't even like to mention his name really. But Lansley, the one thing he did say which I would agree with is nothing about me without me, 
and you know if you're writing about someone and not to them that seems fundamentally antithetical to what we're trying to achieve in person-centered care so um, as I say it's, it's something I teach all my juniors to do uh, I, I, the team I work with have learned to do it uh, but it is a skill to de-jargonize um, and it's a skill we're learning all the time and trying to get better at but what I'm really trying to understand with this latest work is why the heck we're not doing it <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And we will definitely, for any patients or any students listening, I know you mentioned a few terminologies, we'll post some of the glossary of terms for anyone who maybe didn't understand. Well, there I am talking about jargon busting <laughs> and just filling this conversation this with jargon. Richard, to, to, yes. to make sure they learn it, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, I suppose one of them was... Um... I suppose you could explain quickly so what is xerostomia comes from um, the Greek xeros meaning xerostomia. nothing and stomia mouth means and it's the symptom of having a dry mouth and um, as we move toward intensity modulated radiotherapy has become a staple of the delivery of radiotherapy globally uh, certainly in high income countries less so in the low and middle income countries but they actually the, the randomized controlled evidence, and you'll know that randomized controlled evidence is the highest echelon of evidence that we have to, to bring about change. The actual number of randomized controlled trials that show that IMRT is better than is actually very limited. And uh, one of the first and best trials to prove that IMRT uh, was advantageous in terms of the quality of life patients was the UK passport study, which used IMRT to when treating head and neck cancers to treat the cancer and spare the two large parotid glands uh, which produce saliva. But even when we use IMRT, that study showed that still uh, just under 20% of patients would still have a permanently dry mouth after radiotherapy. And if you treat head and neck cancer patients, you'll see them on treat week six. They've got this horrible, sticky, thick, ropey, chewing gum saliva. It's absolutely revolting. That's when you test if people really want to do head and neck when they're doing the on-treat clinics for someone who's in week six, and uh, you'll get people say, "I don't really like head and neck." You've got to, you've got to, you've got to not care about spit. But what happens to those patients by week six post-treatment or three months post-treatment is they have no saliva at all, and um, saliva is so fundamental to human activity. So. Uh, talking just as i'm talking to you now i'm producing a rather thick saliva which allows to lubricate my mouth but once we finish this talk i might go and have my supper and then i need a lot of watery loose saliva to moisturize that and patients who have xerostomia from radiotherapy uh, just can't do that so they can't manage a meal without a big tumbler of water but it extends across all life i remember um, i had an ex support nurse who came to me and said actually this patient the biggest problem is actually that since they've had radiotherapy, they can no longer kiss their wife. Um, and a plug for the Macmillan electronic, electronic Holistic Needs Assessment, that that's a way of capturing everything that's a, a trouble to a patient after treatment. And if we'd not done those holistic needs assessments, I don't think any of us would have ever actually asked or found out about the fact that this patient's xerostomia was impacting on his physical relationship with his wife. So it, it's a massive impact on quality of life in the longer term. And as radiation therapists, as, as technologists, as, uh, as physicists, dosimetrists, radiation oncologists, we're, we're leveraging the technology to spare the parotid glands, but we will still damage them. So trials to improve that symptom in the longer term were really important, hence the acupuncture and xerostomia study. So that was quite, that was a much longer answer than you. You just wanted a definition, didn't you? <laughs> no, that's brilliant really good really good no it's perfect um, so obviously talking a little bit about kind of research and maybe using twitter i know that you obviously during starting at the start of the pandemic you use the online journal club hashtag radonk do you want to tell yeah. us a little bit about that yeah so radonk has been fabulous and i i know i'm preaching to the converted talking to you too but uh, it's the Radonc Journal Club is something I talk to about a lot. So the Radiation Oncology, uh, so Radiation Nation is a website, radiationnation.com. Please have a look at it. Uh, set up by one of the giants of social media in radiation oncology, Matt, Matt Katz from Lowell in Massachusetts. And Matt has been tweeting about radiation oncology for years. When I first started getting involved in 
tweeting and looking at radiation oncology, Matt's name came up and he and I started to communicate and we've become great friends on social media. But one of the most amazing things about social media is I now help Matt run a website. We communicate almost weekly. Uh, I've done lectures with him. We've prepared papers. To, we've written several papers together, um, but I've never actually met him. And that's just one of those things about social media. You can have this incredibly good, uh, tight social, uh, tight working relationships with people. And actually those normal barriers of actually having to have met someone uh, have dissolved. But anyway, uh, one of the things that Matt started and I've been part, proud to be part of the continuing tradition of is the Radiation Oncology Journal Club. So once a month, it was just last weekend, in fact, this weekend just gone, uh, we pick a paper that we think is relevant to radiation oncologists globally. We uh, we persuade the journal public publishers to make that paper uh, free open access because for me the joy of social media is free open access medical education that we can we can be each other's educators for free. You two can teach me an enormous amount. I can teach you something. You know everything. Everybody's got something they can teach somebody for free, right? We don't need to be paying fees to to big organisations, but we invite the publishers to give us the paper for free. They always say yes. We invite the first author online and then over the course of a weekend we facilitate and moderate an online chat and the beauty of that is that it doesn't matter who you are you can be a medical student from delhi you can be a professor of radiation oncology from boston you can be uh, you know a, a nurse from sydney it doesn't matter you can join in you can be a patient and you can ask the question um, and the real value of that came to me last year we'd been doing the, the twitter journal clubs for several years by then we were averaging about one two million hits per per journal club and we got into a habit of publishing those publishing the outcomes in traditional uh, onco um, oncology media so that people could understand it people who weren't necessarily on twitter and then covid hit in february and we said well look, this is an opportunity to leverage this global community to talk about what's happening what what is coming down the line with covid so we rapidly convened a journal club that weekend and over the course of a weekend we had 121 people from around the world take part 17 countries six continents were represented and we were asking the questions what do we think covid is going to mean to the delivery of radiation oncology globally and everyone chipped in everyone gave their thoughts um, and then we were invited by one of the journals to write that up um, we spent a weekend, we spent a week writing up furiously. It was published two days later and it's been cited 171 times since. It was the first, it was the first publication to look at how we might deal with radiation oncology during COVID, hypofractionation, um, um, uh, disinfection procedures, red routes for infected patients, who would we not treat, who should, who must we treat. Um, and it all came about this free global platform where everyone could just chip in. And that to me really showed the value of social media and everyone's voice, everyone's voice being valuable and everyone having a, this wasn't just the usual, oh, we know a guy who's good. Let's ask him to be part of this panel. Oh yeah. And he knows someone else. Um, and it usually ends up being the same people who know each other sat in some closed room sponsored by a drug company that <laughs> produce a paper. <laughs> this was a, a, a very democratic global effort that was leveraged extremely quickly, which produced literature, which I'm proud of, and I think was useful in the early months of the pandemic. And it all came through social media. And don't forget, therapeutic radiographers were highly recognised within that work. <laughs> when yeah, I was absolutely. reading it, I was like, yeah. yes, Richard, amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I mean, you know, I, I think... I think for me, that's the really important part about social media. I, I've heard you, I've heard you talk on this podcast before about the non-doctors, and you know, whilst you know, whilst I recognise the the AHP um, uh, tangent in that, these hierarchies in medicine are not helpful. They're really not helpful, and if we're going to have more broad thought leadership, more novelty of thought, more lateral thinking, more inclusiveness you've you've done a lot on this podcast about talking about inclusion you need a broader spectrum of thought and to do that you need flattened hierarchies you need to invite those voices in and social media to my mind is the first and best place to do that and yeah i mean social media as i think as you alluded to is 
takes a second you can send a tweet or a message anywhere across the world and someone will respond i mean joe and i we met through uh probably twitter at some point probably through medrad journal club or something and then yeah when he met what, a couple of months ago in person but since then we've worked together on quite a lot through social media and i think i've talked about it before i've been quite lucky to work with some diagnostic radiographers in sort of covid related research but just through social media um, and it's that opportunity that it presents and as you said, at the drop of a button, someone can read it anywhere at any time. And it's just brilliant. The president of the United States may have given social media a bad name in terms of politeness of discourse. And, you know, if you type Brexit into your search engine, you're going to you're going to get into some pretty ugly places. But I have to say, I find medical Twitter a very kind and generous place. It's a place where people are respectful of opinions. They're not interested in hierarchy. Uh, they're just interested in sharing uh, experience, uh, I find it a very kind and rewarding place. And I think something to be said as well is for our patients. Um, there are a lot of ambassadors, so patients who've had treatment and, you know, we've, we've talked about bowel babes or Deborah James, or there's two um, sort of patients or as well who've been on. So Sarah came on and obviously Dr. Eliza Royden as well. Um, just the power of using their voice to, to almost to share their story, but all the things that you wouldn't normally see, I suppose, you know, there's lots of online forums. We always tell patients don't, you know, go to ones that are beneficial. Don't go to just ones that you've just typed in no, absolutely and then you'll see everyone just post the negative sides of things. But, you know, you, you do need to hear the negative sides, but lots of people... That they won't share with their oncologist, um, and I, there would be lots of different reasons for that. But you know, you will know that I don't, as an oncologist, I don't get to know. And you know, maybe it's because patients don't want to damage that relationship. Or, but if you go on to Twitter, you will find that you can find what people really think. Not necessarily about me, but you know, when I, uh, BCSM, which is the Breast Cancer Social Media Chat. Um, it's really helpful for me. You know, I, I have treated, I don't know many, I don't know how many thousands of women with breast cancer, but I've never had breast cancer. So I don't know what it's like to have breast cancer. I've witnessed that experience, but I don't know what it's like to be there. And patients will give me testimony, but it's filtered by them knowing that I'm there, I'm the person responsible for delivering their health care. And when you go onto Twitter, you'll find uh, different voices and you'll find people who are really flipping angry about their situation uh, in a way that is unfiltered and gives you some exposure to some of the upset and distrust and problems. Um, I mean, on a, on a lighter note, it was only through social media that I found that the Young Breast Cancer Forum referred to tamoxifen. Uh, as tamoxy bollocks, it's the you know that's the, the, um, you know which I which was amusing at the front, but actually that was really helpful for me because I, I was talking to a young patient about it. I said, "Oh, if, if you were not happy about tamoxifen," and I said, "Oh, tamoxy bollocks." Oh, she said, "Oh, you've heard that, have you?" And it allowed us to have a conversation about how you frame something like that. That what she'd done is she'd framed tamoxifen as a stigmatizing representation of everything that was bad about breast cancer that she had to take this drug to protect her from breast and i said well actually let's you know by calling it that i mean it's a bit jokey but actually you're framing this very positive protective drug as something negative in your life and it was a we were able to deconstruct it a bit and i was led to that by understanding this viewpoint uh, through social media it wasn't something that the patient had chosen to share with me but it was inside got from hearing that from other patients on on social media so it does allow you to see another aspect of lived experience of cancer that you may not get from from just asking the questions in clinic because that's always filtered do you ever get contact sorry go on Naaman. do you think <laughs> i was going to say do you think um there is sort of partnerships that can be i don't know that you could maybe form through social media, yeah, so, so if there are patients who so are looking to reach out for healthcare the, professionals. The General Medical Council, who guide my professional practice, uh, have some rules about social media. Uh, it is uh, you sh those doctors who have got in trouble with um, social media are usually, uh, it's because they've either breached patient confidentiality or had inappropriate contact with patients. So uh, when you get into social media, 
you need to remember that it's not it, you are rep, you are being representative of a doctor. You can't be that person's doctor. You are you are rep, you are you are a guardian and a custodian of information. You can't be giving medical information directly to that person. So you shouldn't be. You know, as you will know, if you're on Twitter, if you follow someone and they follow you back, they can start start messaging you. I know patients of mine follow me on Twitter, but I would never follow them back because that invites them to start private messaging me, and that that then that be, that might put me into some kind of ethical uh, difficulty. So rather than present, create that ethical difficulty for myself, I don't allow that. Uh, I don't have a Facebook presence as a professional. I, my, my, my professional social media presence is only as a, uh, as a Twitter doc. But in answer to your question, I think you can do that partnership in a more general way. So um, there are a number of social media chats around the different disease sites. So PCSM is prostate cancer social media, BCSM breast, breast cancer social media. And most of those hashtags will have weekly chats where patients can drop in. And I will occasionally drop in on the breast cancer social media chat because I do have some expertise which I can lend. I mean, just today, in fact, um, someone tweeted asking, you know, a patient I know very well, um, uh, a patient advocate who's been amazing in the UK, um, and just said, oh, does anyone know what the lifetime risk of a second cancer is in someone who's had a previous breast cancer? And yeah, I do. So I was, I was able to post that. and. Uh, because I know how to get that information and I can present it in a way that's reasonable. Now, as we, we started off by saying how busy I am. It would not be a good use of my time to spend all my time on Twitter answering people's questions. But if 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 they ask a question that I can answer and I can do that in, in a helpful way, then I think that's a good way to use information. You know, when it, I think Heidi, when you had her on, talked about, you know, the superpower we have as... Um, as healthcare professionals in terms of being able to give, you know, help people with information. So we should do that. Oh, thank you for sharing. Um, so I know um, that you have recently co-authored a paper titled um, International Efforts in Geriatric Radiation Oncology. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your ongoing work around that and frailty? Yeah, thank you. So, um uh, again, through Macmillan, I was asked to chair a group on um, care of cancer in the older person, and um, I came to that. I was I was surrounded by a panel of experts, and I was the best person to chair it because all the experts were arguing about what to do, and I just I could just chair it and go, well, I don't know what to do. So you to, uh, but it, it it became something that I I be, I've become really interested in. You will know that I think first of all, you will know that. Um, with an aging population, cancer becomes more prevalent. So we're all going to be seeing more and more older patients uh, who need treatment for their cancer. And the first thing I'd want to say is we shouldn't be framing that as a problem. You, you'll read journals that talk about the tsunami of older people or the, the avalanche of or, uh, framing this as a negative thing. It's a wonderful thing that we're living to be older. But if we live to be older, I mean, I'm sure all three of us have a conflict of interest in that we all hope to be old one day. Um, I should just say, when I do this work, I always say people, people say, well, how do you define old? Well, the whole point of this literature is that you, you don't define old by a number. You define old by frailty. So age is not, aging is a process of numerical advancement of years, but what we're really interested in is the accumulation of frailty. So everyone will know the incredibly fit 85 year old and the incredibly frail 70 year old. So we don't define this by numbers. I will share with you, you can define youth in medicine now, and youth you define as however old you currently are. So as a 52-year-old man, I, now I, I, I've got the medical students with me in clinic and I say, oh, this is a young woman. And the, me the medical students look at me like I'm mental because they're, <laughs> they're, they're 20 and I'm, I'm inviting this 50-year-old woman and saying she's very young because she's younger than me. But, uh, um, so we've got this good problem of an, uh, an aging population who have survived their cardiac disease and their hypertension, their diabetes, and they go on to get cancer. And we need to learn how to treat them compassionately and properly. Um, so we try not to be pejorative. So we don't use the word elderly. We don't use the word geriatric. We talk about older people. And fundamental to this is assessing frailty. So not talking about age as a number, how 
fit or otherwise is this person and the opposite of fitness is frailty so we talk about the accumulation of frailty and some of you will have heard or seen in our hospital something called the clinical frailty score the rockwood score um, which is a nine point score which allows us to uh, uh, a portion of frailty scale to a patient and that's the first step in trying to understand how fit or otherwise a person is and how well they may be able to withstand intensive cancer treatments the second step is understanding what that person wants because we've got an accumulating data which shows that many older patients will prioritize quality of survival over survival particularly independence so for example if a surgeon was consenting an older person for an operation surgeons will normally talk about what the likelihood of dying under the anesthetic is We've got a lot of data now that shows some older patients aren't really interested about dying under the anaesthetic. What they're interested in is, will I need to go to a nursing home after this operation? And that is likely to be a greater disincentive to having the operation than it is then. So we need to, and then thirdly, we need to understand, will they have the stamina and fitness to get through our therapy? And if you're talking about a prolonged course of radiation treatment, you, don't, you will know that a half course of radiation is worse than no course of radiation because you've given them all the toxicity and none of the benefit. So when you're planning a course of radiation treatment, you want to know that that patient is going to be able to get through it. So assessing their fitness to do all of that is really important. And I'm really pleased that there's now an international um, groundswell of people who are really interested in uh, this area. And although I've said we don't like the term geriatric, unfortunately the term geriatric oncology has rather stuck, but uh, there is a whole groundswell of people who are working really hard to say, how do we best treat the older patient with cancer, uh, with multimorbidity, frailty and dementia? And I'm really pleased to have worked with some amazing people. And I, I'd, I'd have to sh give a shout out to Anitra Donovan in Dublin, um, who's done incredible work on this. And if you could get her to come and talk on this, she would she would be amazing. Well, now you've named named and shamed her, Richard. <laughs> uh, she's, got, she's got no choice. We will hound no, her absolutely. on social media. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anita's done incredible work in this area, and I'm very pleased to have co-authored some of that. But we're, we're at a guideline development stage, but also accumulating evidence about what we can do. And uh, most, some of the innovations in radiotherapy that we've all been part of, are, so hypofractionation, being able to deliver radiotherapy, breast radiotherapy, for example, in just five days now, rather than 15, has made a massive difference to the acceptability of radiotherapy to our older patients. Uh, and we know that um, older patients were less likely to accept radiotherapy if fraction numbers were high. And as fraction numbers come down in cancers that affect older people, breast cancer, prostate cancer, uh, radiotherapy is more likely to be an acceptable treatment intervention to those patients. But we need to work to make it doable. You know, just that anyone who's had to, you know, help an 80 year old uh, who couldn't get onto the treatment couch very well and wondered what on earth is the radiation oncologist, <laughs> why have they signed off this prescription, will understand that there's more to treating cancer than just what fractionation you're going to use, but is this right for this patient? And those those conversations are very acute in the older person. Definitely had patients um maybe in their late 80s or 90s who we've treated or who i've treated we've treated who you know so being a bit honest but some of them have said yeah, not so sure why i'm uh, having radiotherapy my main area um, is breast cancer i don't know if that's something and, you've come across um, i know you talked about difficult conversation but the uk that smaller low risk breast cancers um from a large uk study uk led study called the prime 2 study showing that for smaller low risk breast cancers there is no survival benefit to giving radiotherapy. Now, radiotherapy reduces the risk of that cancer recurring, but a recurrence can often be successfully treated by further surgery. Um, but there is a benefit in terms of presenting a recurrence. So in order to help a patient make an honest discussion about that, we have a chat and I'm very pleased to work with an excellent uh, advanced practice um, radiographer who has most of those conversations in the next door room to me um, and Kate has been is very expert at guiding those conversations and a lot of patients will say well actually you know if this isn't going to help me live longer and if it's my risk of recurrence is very low 
and if I have a recurrence, you're going to be able to deal with it. I don't want radiotherapy, thank you very much. And thank you for discussing with me and see you. <laughs> I'm off because <laughs> I've got better things to do with my time. But that, that, comes from an honest, that comes from an honest discussion about what those patients' priorities are. And you can never assume, um, Kate called me in just a, a few weeks ago for a, a patient who on, on paper we really didn't think would want radiotherapy. And there was no way she was not going to have radiotherapy because a 3% reduction in local recurrence rate was very, very important to her. And so we respected that, that wish on her behalf. And I think there's something I see I think more often where close through COVID, lots of patients weren't going for surgery. So we would see the thing, as you described, the patients you would normally think wouldn't end up having radiotherapy. I think that experience over the last 18 months has been quite, it's quite a good experience, I think, learning sort of yeah. different types of patient backgrounds that would come through. I think one or even earlier stage patients who've come through when normally you wouldn't see them because they'd have uh, had surgery. Learning how best um, to treat the patient with dementia. But, um, uh, because the, the radiotherapy treatment room is a, a, it can be an intimidating environment for any patient. But for the patient who, even very early stage dementia, can be really very challenging. And um, the Society of Radiographers has produced some documentation on looking after patients' dementia, building dementia-friendly departments. But we've still got a long way to go in uh, delivering truly dementia-friendly radiotherapy. And we're definitely going to see a lot more of that. Definitely. And I think that's where the interpersonal skills come in. And I know Jo's been telling me all about her do, simulations do that she's doing with her students. So I'm sure that's been coming students. in for, for you, hasn't it, Jo? You just get some real insight. So it's a proper theatrical um, production. It's not me pretending to have dementia. Um, but they are all actors who have had personal experience of caring for someone with dementia and happen to be actors, actresses. And they're amazing. Like everyone always comes out, there's not a dry dry eye in the in the crowd because it is really emotive but it really does help students going into a clinical setting who may never have experienced anyone having dementia just seeing it from lots of different people's perspective um, and I think it can be you know I remember treating a dementia patient when I was a student and I was like what are we doing why, why are we treating this patient um, so you do have that kind of moral confliction sometimes when you don't necessarily understand everything and why maybe they are going for treatment in those early stages. I, I think there's nothing more difficult and, you know, perhaps in more upsetting for the therapy teams and the carers and sometimes the patients themselves than, than treating a patient who's cognitively, um, cognitively impaired with head and neck cancer. I mean, you know, a head and neck immobilization shell is a distressing experience for pretty much every patient. And if you already cognitively disadvantaged in terms of not being quite sure of place and person and then someone fixes you to, with the mobilization shell and some of the times we've been forced to consider immobilization for a, uh, a patient suffering for dementia has been really hard for the tre treating teams and uh, it needs a it uh, one of the things that we can be doing and should be doing is working to develop more dementia friendly practice but part of that as you say joe is is understanding the dementia because sometimes um, the dementia the, the the natural history of the dementia might exceed the natural history of the cancer so uh, sometimes the cancer teams are not um, I was gonna say guilty perhaps guilty of not understanding enough about what was going to happen with that dementia if, if you left the cancer untreated and leaving the cancer untreated might have been a kinder thing to do Yeah, and there's a lot kind of, well, I mean, there's so much we could discuss about the dementia side of things. It's very interesting, isn't it? I suppose there are lots of dementia champions coming up in different trusts as well, which is quite nice to see. Um, and I suppose it comes from lots of charity work. Um, so behind the scenes, I know Joe and I, we've talked about it quite a lot. Um, so we do a lot of work with um, Radiotherapy UK, it's called now. Um, you know, we're both STEM so ambassadors. So um, with, uh, Joe, you do some work with Girl Guides. Um, I think uh, I'm getting that right. Um, and I do some work with Move Charity, but what sort of charity work are you involved with, Richard? I know you're doing quite a lot. The work they do is extraordinary. Um, in I, I was I was delighted to work with Millen. The first time I was invited to a meeting with Macmillan, um, 
we talked about a project, um, I think it was about communication, and a week later, someone from Macmillan contacted me and said, oh, this is all ready to go. We've got this ready to go out now. Do you just, just want to just proof check it? And having worked in the NHS for 20 years <laughs> where you, you go to meetings and talk about stuff and then six months later, someone says, whatever happened to that project? And I think Richie was doing, to work with an organization that was enabled and leveraged to do stuff and, and make things happen was, was, was wonderful. So I'm very <laughs> pleased and proud to be part of that organization and the stuff they do. Um, I, I'm also involved with a, um, a, a charity called Mummy Star. Uh, led by a, a, an amazing guy called Pete Walroth. And uh, Pete set up the charity after his wife died of breast cancer shortly after giving birth to their uh, child. And Mummy Star is a charity that specifically helps with the, with the very difficult scenario uh, of women being diagnosed with a cancer during or shortly after a pregnancy. Now we think, we, we estimate that somewhere between one and uh, one in 1,000 to one in 2,000 cancers are complicated by a pregnancy. Uh, sorry, one in two, the other way around. One in 1,000 1 pregnancies are complicated by a, a cancer. And that's going to become more common because the age uh, of women having uh, pregnancies is getting older and older. The average age for a first pregnancy in this country is now 31. It's the highest it's ever been. And as women, for lots of good, well-articulated sociological reasons, defer pregnancy or have pregnancy later in life, unfortunately, because cancers occur later in life, we're going to see that problem of cancer and pregnancy happening together at the same time more often. But it, you, you, I, it's not difficult to imagine the devastation that wreaks on a on a mother, on an expectant mother when she's diagnosed with cancer at the same time. And Mummy Star exists to provide support to those women because peer support is super helpful. But um, Pete also makes sure there's an education component to the cancer and midwifery teams uh, and a lot of outreach to midwifery teams, um, but uh, also to the cancer teams, because as healthcare professionals, we're all empathic, right? We, we, you know, we, we do this job at some level uh, because we've got empathy. And if we haven't, we need to get out. <laughs> and actually, most people... Uh, will find looking after a woman uh, struggling with cancer and a pregnancy quite emotionally difficult, even if they're very seasoned cancer professionals. So um, uh, we exist to provide professional support to help them deliver that therapy uh, safely and effectively. And actually, with the exception of radiotherapy, <laughs> you can deliver almost all cancer treatments safely during pregnancy. So once a woman, once a woman gets into the second trimester, you can give chemo, pretty much all chemotherapies. In fact, once a woman's in the second third of her pregnancy, alcohol is more damaging to the fetus than most chemotherapies. So we are able to deliver successful cancer treatments, um, but not radiotherapy. Um, I, I look after a lot, you know, because of that area, I do care for quite a lot of women who have breast cancer during pregnancy, and the radiotherapy is the one thing we try and avoid. But Mummy Star, an extraordinary charity in a very bespoke place, but in connecting people for, for peer support, they do an extraordinary job. And, and Pete and his team in terms of educating midwives, cancer teams. And um, I, I'm very pleased to be part of that in terms of offering medical advice. Oh, thank you. And we'll definitely post that along with the podcast so people can check that charity out. So, Richard, we know we've taken up a lot of your evening already. So the last thing that we always end with, with all of our guests, is some top tips. So have you got any top tips for patients, healthcare professionals, anyone listening? Is there anything yeah, well, I've that already you told you I'm hopeless at time management, on. haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> so I think the social media thing, get involved, you know, you know, be part of the conversation. Um, because we I think we are at an extraordinary point. In the last few years, we've seen much more diverse voices in healthcare. Uh, and that that not just across a gender and race uh, sexuality spectrum but diversity is just in diversity of thought and the doors are starting to open and one of the one of the places where those uh, doors are most open is in social media you know i'm not i'm f for all you've been very kind about my research but i'm not a massively published researcher but I'm quite well known for what I've done, partly because I talk about it on <laughs> on social media, and uh, that's enabled me to get into rooms that I might not otherwise have got into, and that that's the same for everyone. So, 
um, be part of that. A good colleague of mine is on social media, but never ever tweets. Just and so you, you don't have to be as gobby as I am. <laughs> you can <laughs> you you can be on social media and just you know witness the conversations and chip in intermittently. I, I love the sound of my own voice too much to do that, but you know it's. That's what I can... say to all my students, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I think being part of that. And then I think every single person involved in healthcare knows something about why their, how their practice could be better. Everyone knows something about their service that could be better. And whether it's writing to patients or giving audio recordings of consultations or making sure that we've got a screen so we show the respired deep inspiratory breath hold video that Heidi was talking about you know you know whatever it is focus on something small like that and deliver it because there's nothing more satisfying than knowing that you've improved the care at your place of work and you know that whole thing don't bring me a problem bring me a solution the people you work with love that if you say look I've, I've identified this problem in our organization but I think this is what we could do about it you'll be you'll be welcomed with open arms so as I said, I don't doubt that everyone listening to this will know something wrong uh, or something that could be better in their place of work. And if they have an idea of what, how to improve that, well, then take it forward. Try and try and bring about some service improvement because that you don't have to be a senior lecturer or uh, you can bring about service improvement, which is enormously um, rewarding in terms of your um, professional development. Thank you very much. Really, really valid points and top tips to take away for everyone. Um, thank you. And uh, thank you for everyone for listening to this podcast. Um, so your hosts today have been uh, me, so Naaman Chuck-Anderson and Joe McNamara. A huge thank you again to our guest, Dr. Richard Simcock. Uh, if you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with the links to resources and literature that we've discussed within the podcast. To receive your accredited CPD digital badge, please complete the Google uh, form linked with the podcast. Um, also, our next guest to feature will be Ayana Butt, who will be discussing her experience with breast cancer. I work around raising awareness of breast cancer within the South Asian community. Um, so thank you everyone for listening and take care.